We have uh, three readings this morning from uh, starting at Genesis 12. So I invite you to find that in your Bible, Genesis 12. And then we'll jump to a few verses from there, and then we'll jump to verse chapter 15, and then uh, jump to chapter 17. Uh, but uh, before we do that, let's again pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We pray for help in understanding it. Help us to see uh, the big picture of your saving grace. Uh, We thank you for the covenant of grace and we pray your blessing now as we study your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start in chapter 12. Um, I know that a few months ago, not very many months ago, we were studying the life of Abraham. So we're going to revisit the life of Abraham, but we're going to pick out the, the covenant promises that were made. Uh, to, to Abraham. We're beginning at chapter 12 and just read the first three verses. Remember that Abraham has been um, called by, uh, is moving from east to west with his father. And uh, verse 1, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, uh, Go from your country and your kindreds and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, in hi- and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we jump to chapter 15. <clears throat> and uh, picking out a couple of sections of that. Verses 1 to 6, first of all. And a few years have passed by, and uh, after these things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. You've, you've been given, given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then happens a a ritual which we'll come to later, a ceremony that God carries out with Abraham, and, uh, and the conclusion of that ceremony is the laying out of animals on left and right, and there's a passageway between, and at the conclusion, verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And then we jump to uh, chapter 17, and a bit longer this time, uh, first 14 verses. When Abraham was 99, so a few more years have passed by, 
he was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called, called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenants, you, shall, you and your offspring, after you throughout the genera- their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and who has been bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Amen. So today we're returning to uh, our series in the studies of God's covenant. Doing covenant theology. We've covered a lot of ground so far. Uh, We've seen that for people to be able, who are made in the image of God, to be able to relate to God, it's it's not possible for us to reach up to God. Because he's God and we're creatures. So God has to come down to us. God has to condescend to us as a confession. Uh, He comes down to us. And you see this all over the scripture. That God is the one who comes down. He is the one who initiates relationship with human beings. And, uh, And Adam had that wonderful fellowship with God in the garden. Remember? Uh, it's before he sinned, uh, but even there, God had to come down to him, create a garden for him, and God walked in the garden with Adam as he did his work. He, he worked and kept, kept the garden. And Adam began that, his new life, in relationship to God. He, uh, so he had this wonderful fellowship with God where promises were made, where requirements were put on Adam not to eat the, tree, the fruit of the tree. Of the, knowledge of, good, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, with a warning that if you do eat it, then you'll die. But, you know, it's an easy thing to keep. So don't eat that tree, just eat everything else. Uh, you, can, you can do that. But sadly, as we know, Adam failed. He fell into sin. And, and so that covenant before the fall 
essentially came to an end. There's no way for human beings to have that fellowship with God. So how is that going to be resolved? How, how are we going to get out of this mess that human beings are in? Well, the answer is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. And people have called it that. And you won't find a term in the Bible, the covenant of grace. You'll talk, hear about different covenants. But it all seems to be bound up into a single covenant. And people have called that the covenant of grace. Because God is the one who acts in grace. He doesn't set, uh, he doesn't set requirements any longer to, to perfect obedience. Because we can't do that. But God graciously comes to people and provides another way to bridge the chasm that has been caused by our sin. See, the sin creates this great chasm between God on the one side and us on the other. And somehow that's got to be bridged. And the answer to that is is somehow God's grace is going to reach over that chasm to reach us. Somehow, and we'll find out how, and you'll probably guess what it is, but we'll find out how that chasm has been bridged. And we've begun to do a survey of how God's covenant of grace unfolds in Scripture. Um, And what we'll see, uh, uh, and I hope, what we'll see, I hope, is that the promise made to Abraham after the fall in Genesis 3.15 about one who had a seed of the woman who had come and strike the seed of the serpent and, and crush the head of the serpent. That seed of promise is planted in history. And what you now see is that little seed, Genesis 3.15, growing and growing and growing to fullness and it will finally flourish and flower in beauty in Jesus Christ. And the reason we call it a single covenant of grace is because the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ are rooted in that Genesis 3.15 promise. So the seed is not actually different from the full flowering new covenant promise. It's the same thing. It just hasn't developed yet. It takes time to develop through history. So I'm I'm asserting something here which I hope you'll see as we go along in the next few weeks. That this seed is not a different thing from the fullness that comes in Jesus Christ. So the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ that we celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper together, that is not a different covenant promise from the ones that you find in the Old Testament. In substance, they are the same thing. And hopefully we'll see that as we go along. So last time we looked at uh, at that promise made to Abraham in Genesis 3.15, to Adam in Genesis 3.15, And we also looked at the promises made to Noah very briefly uh, about the common grace that's made over to all of mankind uh, through the the promise, remember the rainbow, and uh, the promise that God makes not to flood the earth again. What we're doing now is we're going to move on to the third post-fall covenant uh, with Abraham. It's really the same covenant, but it's just a new development in the same covenant. 
the third covenant promise. And it's, this is the promise that's made to Abraham. And God actually comes to Abraham three times. Uh, and we read the passages earlier, Genesis 12, 15 and 17. And I want to take those passages one by one. Uh, we won't go into great detail with them. We've done that before. You want to go into detail, you can look at the sermons that we preached on this in the past. But, but the first is in chapter 12. And uh, I want just to think with you about God's promise. And the thing to notice here is that all that happens at this beginning point in Abraham's life is all of God. That God does it all. Abraham is traveling with his father from east to west. And he's minding his own business. He's just doing what he should do. He's following his father who has plans. And there's nothing particularly impressive about Abraham. We don't really know a great deal about Abraham at this stage. There's nothing particularly impressive about him. He wasn't, we don't know if he was particularly gifted. We don't know if he was particularly handsome or rich or a man of stature that impresses everyone. We don't know that. We don't know anything about that. And that doesn't matter. Because the point is that God chose him. It's God's sovereign choice. And God makes this promise to Abraham. And it's a threefold promise. There's three things in the promise. First is, he promises land for Abraham. So Abraham's a nomad, but he promises land. And the, you know, the question might arise, well, which land? And God doesn't say which land. Not yet. Be patient, Abraham. There's a land that's coming to, to you and your offspring. So just be patient. And the second promise is, in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. In other words, he's going to have children. And their children will have children. And there will be lots of children. There's almost a kind of fruitfulness and multiplying across the earth. Through Abram. Which is a bit of a puzzle because Abram's not able to have children, as you saw. If you read on in the story. His wife is barren. So it's a kind of strange promise. But he runs with it. He receives it. Holds on to it. And the third part of the promise is the continued presence and blessing of God. I will bless you, verse 2. I will bless you. This is about his presence and fellowship with God. And remember that that's significant. All all of these things are, this presence and fellowship with God is significant because, remember, Adam once had fellowship with God, but he lost it. Or is significantly degraded by his sin. But now God is coming to Abraham and promising his blessing. So you can see with all these three promises, land, a people, continued presence of God, In many ways, what's happening here is a restoration of what Adam lost. Eden, beautiful land to live in. Be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve. And they had every intention of doing so. And fellowship with God. And Adam is beginning to have, see, Abraham is beginning to see restored in his life all those blessings that Adam 
lost, but it's coming to him by grace. Of course, Abraham's life is tainted with sin, so he will not experience these things to the degree that Adam experienced them in the garden. Not yet, anyway. But nonetheless, we see God taking steps to restore what was lost in the garden in this covenant of grace. It's all of grace. An amazing thing. The whole thing is all of grace. And God acts sovereignly and graciously towards his people that he's chosen. Let's move on to the second passage, Genesis 15. And here in Genesis 15, uh, Abram is walking with God. Uh, he has God's blessing in this, uh, this small way. Uh, he has that presence of God with him. He knows that fellowship with God. But he doesn't have any of the other things that have been promised yet, the land and children. He's looking forward to a child. Uh, but he, he can't see how that's going to happen yet. Uh, and that's, that's weighing heavily on him, I think. As you read the story of Abraham, it weighs heavily on him. And God answers. Uh, I mean, actually, Abraham raises that with God in verse 3. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. He's, there's a bit of tension there. Uh, he doesn't think he's going to have an offspring. And God answers that question by pointing up to the sky, taking him out at night time, and pointing up to the sky, and saying, you know, count all the stars in the sky. You can try. <laughs> and imagine tonight, it might be quite, the sky will be clear, and you'll be able to try and count the stars. Uh, what's, what's the telescope that's just started coming online and was on the news last week? Uh, the, is it the Webb, James Webb Telescope? And all these beautiful pictures of galaxies and stars and you know, so many more billions that you couldn't see before, even with the Hubble telescope. I mean, there's just so many things, so many out there. And God says to Abram, you know, your, your children are going to be like that. That's a promise that he gives. It's wonderful. So, so Abram believes that. And, he, and here's, there's a famous and uh, well-known verse in verse 6. God, uh, Abram's believed the Lord and, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. To believe in the Lord, to believe his promises, is to receive righteousness, to be righteous. It's not about being holy, perfectly holy, because that's, that's impossible. Uh, that will come as a fruit, but, but righteousness comes as a gift. God declares it when you believe in God, believe in his promises. Okay, that's one thing. That's the children question. What about the land? And so verse 7 and 8, God, I keep losing my place. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So Abram's got this question. How am I to know that I'm going to possess this land? And at this point, God sets up a ceremony. And the point of a ceremony, and this is true in any ceremony, the point of a ceremony is that the act of it serves to confirm what God has said. Do you see? 
Because um, through doing it, we get a sense of how much God means what he says. Now, we know how valuable ceremonies are in our lives. Uh, we, we, we often make a ceremony out of a wedding, don't we? It's a big thing. It's, uh, uh, you know, the dress and the, the suits and the flowers. And, uh, and then the, the actual service itself has a certain number of steps. And there's some legal, legally required things that have to be in there for you to be legally married. And you have to go through all those. Uh, you know, if you get it wrong, you might not be properly married. Because <laughs> the law says... So there's a ceremony there, and we make a big thing out of it. And then afterwards we have a party and a a celebration of it. And and the whole thing, you see, it comes together to remind us of the significance of what the young couple, maybe old couple, have just done. (laughs) And we can look back on it, we can remember. Remember that wedding? Remember that amazing wedding? Remember that great day? And they're still together? They're having a wonderful time? They love each other all the more than they did then. You see how it works. That ceremonies really help to cement a truth. Uh, when an athlete wins the, an Olympic gold medal, we don't just say, oh, well, great race, thanks, bye. Uh, we, we hold them back, and then later we have a ceremony to give them a medal. And everybody cheers and waves, and they all wave at the crowd, and it's just such a great event. What a significant feat that person has has achieved. And we remember it. Ceremonies matter. And this is what we have here with Abraham. God knows that these kinds of symbolic ceremonies really matter in cementing the faith of his children. And so God gives this memorable ceremony. So what is the ceremony? That he does. Well, it's the kind of ceremony actually that uh, has been, scholars have noted, happens between kings in, at that time in the ancient Near East. You know, if you had a big king, there's a lot of kings around. You know, if you look at Genesis, uh, Genesis 14, there's lots of kings, uh, little city states. And often the relationships between those kings were uh, relationships of uh, superior power to inferior power. So the big king. We'd enter into a treaty with the little king, and the little king would have to take on requirements with the big king. You know, I'll give you tributes, I'll give you so many soldiers to fight for you, and this sort of thing. Uh, and so that you'd have the ceremony. And the ceremony that God uses here seems similar to the ceremonies that were used between kings. And so you'd take some animals and chop them in two. And lay them out on the, on, on the ground and you'd have a pathway down the middle. And then the little king would walk down ceremonially through between the dead animals. And that was him symbolically saying, I will keep all, my, all the requirements you place upon me and the promises I have made on pain of my death if I don't do it. If I don't keep my promises and my requirements... Uh, I deserve to die. So that's so, and the big king would look on with satisfaction, no doubt, at that ceremony. Now, when God is making this relationship with Abraham, who do you think then should walk down the middle of the the line of animals? 
Wouldn't you think it was the little king that would do the walking and committing to the big king? That Abraham would be committing to God? Well, as you see, that doesn't actually happen. Abraham just spends his time trying to keep the birds off the dead animals. And then when night time comes, he falls asleep. Actually, God gives him a deep sleep. And while he's asleep, he sees something, probably in a dream or a vision or something. He sees a fire pot and a torch. And in his dream, this fire pot travels down between the dead animals. Now what's going on here? Well, this is God saying, I am God. I am an uh, inextinguishable fire. And I am committing myself to keep the requirements of the covenant on pain of death. It's a strange thing, isn't it? God is saying, I deserve to die if I do not keep this promise that I'm making to you, Abraham. What an amazing thing. God graciously takes upon himself the burden of covenant commitment. This is why it's a covenant of grace. He takes it upon himself. It seems all back to front, doesn't it? But this is God's gracious covenant. And God comes to Abraham with this wonderful promise. God alone is going to repair the damage that is caused by his sin and the sin of mankind. God is, and see, so God has taken all initiative so far. He has plucked Abraham out of nowhere, made it over to him stupendous promises. And then he confirms those promises through a sign that showed that God himself was going to bear the burden of the covenant commitments on Abraham's behalf. It's all of God. A covenant of grace. Here's the last thing. Let's look at chapter 17, very briefly. So time passes again. Abraham is now uh, 99 years old. uh, An unbelievably old age. Um, He's still got no son. He's still got no land. And as every year goes by, the prospect of obtaining that seems to get more distant. And yet God repeats his promises in verses 1 uh, one to eight, and in fact, he elaborates on them uh, about the promises of land and us and us and, and generations to come. And indeed, the promises are for the succeeding generations, for an eternal covenant. But this time, God adds something that Abraham has to do. So far, Abraham hasn't had to do very much, but now he's there is a requirement that Abraham has to keep. Now you might think, well because God is, and you might think Abraham is tempted to think this, that because God is doing everything and he's committing to everything, that any requirement on Abraham is, is kind of unnecessary. It's a kind of take it or leave it thing. Um, because God has committed himself to seeing through his promises. So why should Abraham really have to worry too much about doing anything? Uh, sometimes Christians think that way about God. 
God is sovereign, he elects people, and why do I have to do anything? Well, God actually knocks that idea on the head. And this is where you have to have a good view of covenant as well as election. Now, verse 14. See, that this, the thing that Abraham's to do is to circumcise all the males of the household. But in verse 14, he says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You can break covenant by neglect of the simple things that God requires you to do. So what, he's do- what God is doing is he is He's actually making it absolutely necessary for the males of a household to be circumcised. Otherwise, God will cut them off from the covenant blessings. And so it would be an absolute disaster if a little boy was not circumcised because of the neglect of his parents or possibly the pig-headedness of his parents. I don't have to do that. Why should I do that? I refuse. <laughs> so this, this act of circumcision is to be Abraham's response to God's gracious covenant. And actually it's really an act, it's to be an act of faith on Abraham's part. The, the act of circumcising himself being circumcised, his children being circumcised, all his servants being circumcised, that is an act of faith on Abraham's part. So in a sense it's not a circumcision that, that does anything. It's, it's through his faith. As we've seen already, faith is accounted to him as righteousness. Now that may raise for us a question. Does, does circumcision then, which comes out of his faith, somehow earn God's covenant blessings? And people get tied up in knots over this sort of thing. And the answer is, of course, that circumcision doesn't actually do anything in itself. And it can't. Why should it? Why, why should cutting off a foreskin do anything in terms of your eternal salvation? It's about as useful as putting your hands in your head, holding your breath for ten seconds and hopping on one foot. Would that save you? Don't think so. But God makes it a necessary condition of covenant blessing. And without it, you can't have the blessings. It's not a meritorious, what you might call a meritorious act that earns something for you. But it is a necessary act as an act of faith. Uh, Just just by way of analogy. I've got a minister friend who's... uh, who has a season ticket to Manchester United. Uh, and uh, he gets to go every, every Saturday that they're playing at home. And I'm not jealous or anything. <laughs> but he, he didn't buy it. Uh, somebody bought it for him. Uh, somebody gave it to him. He gave him two years worth of uh, season tickets. And it's all on your phone nowadays. So you just wave it at somebody. Or a thing, a machine. Now, the thing about that is, 
you know, he, he goes every Saturday, he goes and sits, he, he watches the home games. And uh, it's interesting to think, what's, this, what's the place of the ticket in that arrangement? Does the, is the ticket necessary for him to get into the game? Yes. But has he paid for the ticket? No, it's a gift. He hasn't done anything to deserve it. But without the ticket, he can't get in. And that's the kind of analogy. The ticket itself doesn't do anything. It just signals something. What really matters is that somebody gave him that gift. And this is what's happening here. That God gives of his grace to his people. He is giving of his grace to Abraham and all his generations afterwards. And all Abraham has to do, as it were, is to, is to perform this little ceremony and include his children in the covenant blessings. And he's done the right thing and nobody's cut off. So faith is the condition of the covenant. But it's not a meritorious condition. But it is the kind of faith that does what God wants him to do. Well, what's all of this got to do with us today? Let me, uh, let me just finish off with a few thoughts. Friends, if you're, if you're a Christian this morning, I hope you can see that, these thing, uh, that the things that characterize Abraham's enjoyment of the covenant blessings are the same things that characterize our enjoyment today of covenant blessings. You will have, if you're a Christian today, you will have experienced God sovereignly coming to your life. And that's true whether you were converted at an older age or whether you were brought up in a Christian family. You didn't have any choice in that. God did it. God has put you, if you're a child brought up in a Christian family, God has put you there. God is sovereignly already active in your life. And so God sovereignly comes. Then you, at some point you've become aware of the promises of God and his way of salvation. Now we can see more clearly than Abraham could of how salvation was going to come that God's son was going to have to come he was going to have to come and suffer and die for sins but you see that you see the promises and you have, if you're a Christian you have come to believe it all, you have come to faith in this God, you have come to believe in the power of his saving work and then you were baptized and if you had children your children were baptized Because you don't want them to miss out in the covenant blessings and be a covenant breaker. Because of your neglect or maybe your pigheadedness. So baptize your children. I know I'm making an assertion here and we will come to baptism later in this series on covenant theology. But just a place marker here. Baptism matters to your children. And you and I, we need to rejoice in this amazing God and commit ourselves afresh to him like Abraham did and to worship him. Friends, if you're not a Christian today, then I hope you can see that God is gracious, 
that he's kind and good, even to the worst of sinners. And that the whole Bible gives ample testament to the fact that his arms are open wide to sinners. That he has provided someone who can save you from your sins. The promised seed, Jesus Christ. And he will never turn away anybody who comes to him. How you need to come to him to receive those blessings. You just need to come, and I urge you that you do so, and find out how good he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wonderful covenant structure that you have established in your word. You come down and condescend to have fellowship with people. That you draw men and women, boys and girls, into the orbit of your grace. And we discover that you are good. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not a believer, we pray you would draw them to yourself and all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.